Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verses 27 through 31. 27 through 31. We're going to finish chapter 3 today. I was uh, a, a naive, cocky college kid. And... Got away with a couple buddies on uh, a stretch of, of Tennessee Highway in a red Jeep Wrangler that I drove at the time with a top down with all three of us had cigars that we were smoking. And we had built a potato gun. Does anybody know what a potato gun is? Okay. So these... <laughs> These things are deadly. Uh, they are highly illegal. You, you can go to Lowe's <laughs> and build one, put together a shopping cart full of stuff to build one, but they have a PVC pipe, probably like a six-inch uh, chamber that you wire a grill igniter into with a seal cap on the end and it feeds down into a two-inch barrel and you take uh, yeah I shouldn't teach you right exactly but you 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 kind of sharpen the end of the thing and you jam a potato down and shove it down with a ramrod and then you can shoot a potato a chunk of potato like a quarter of a mile it's an awesome thing. It's amazing, really. And the sound is something I'll never be able to get out of my head. It's just wonderful, the sound. And, and so we're driving down the, the Tennessee Highway with, with our shirts off and just, you know, just stupid kids. And all of a sudden, I look in the rearview mirror, and there's berries and cherries. And, and I'm, sit, I'm sitting here with a top down in a red Jeep Wrangler, shirts off, smoking cigars with a potato gun in between the seats. And my buddy is sitting in the back seat with a big bag of potatoes in his lap. <laughs> now, do you or don't you think we're going to get a ticket on this occasion? And the cop pulls us over and he says, after looking at my license, hello, Mr. Burris. And I said, officer, I said, I have never in the six years that I've been driving received a speeding ticket. You know? And he looks at me and he says, you're going to get one today, Mr. Burris. <laughs> and he proceeds to write a ticket. We, uh, it's kind of a depressing, you know, drive the remainder uh, into the Tennessee mountains where we, he did not see the potato gun. I am shocked to this day. But we continued to deploy potatoes from this gun off of a mountainside and down into a river. And then we, we hiked, we, we had, rumor had it, there was a, a cave that we could spelunk in. And we hiked through the woods and we found, and oddly enough, like, the, the nature trail ended up being like in someone's backyard, but there was a cliffside there, a hillside there, and in it was a tiny hole. And we thought, is this it? Like, really? Like, this is the cave that we were told was so spectacular and amazing? I mean, there's somebody's clothesline right there across the creek, right? I mean, how impressive can this really be? And yet we crawled through this hole. You had to get down all fours and, and crawl through the hole. I think we kind of had to elbow military crawl, what, what have you. And we got in, and it just opened up into the most amazing, amazing cave. And there were bats 
hanging and there was water running through it. And we took red string along and laid it down so we wouldn't lose, you know, our way and get lost. But we just spent hours in, in this first time I had ever gone spelunk. I don't know if you call it exploring, whatever it is in this, in this cave. It was incredible. I think today's uh, text in Romans is kind of like that. In the sense that you almost want to skim over it because it looks to be much to do about nothing. But when you really explore it, it's fascinating and, and, and jaw-dropping and awe-inspiring once you get inside. So I'm going to read it to you, uh, verses 27 through 31, after explaining in big, beautiful theological language what salvation is. This is what the Apostle Paul says. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is the one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then over, overthrow this law by faith? Well, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. It's almost like Paul is rambling a little bit about the law after he's finished making his, his main point. Uh, the more I learn about Romans, the more I see that these verses are crucial in addressing one of Paul's primary concerns in the book. And I want to remind you that while the book of Romans is, is considered to be the most meaty theological book, arguably, that's ever been written, that it was written practically to address really one main problem in the local church in Rome, uh, which was, as we will see today, racism. It's the Jews and the Gentiles that are not getting along. Um, if you'll remember, Romans was written right after the Jews had returned to the church in Rome. They had been banished. Uh, they had been kicked out by Emperor Claudius for a period of five years. That story is found uh, at the beginning of Acts 18. And Claudius later lifts the ban and he lets the Christians come back. And they come back to a church after having been gone five years that's full of Gentile leadership. The Gentiles had taken charge. And so the Jews are, are used to church looking like a certain kind of style and, and way and tradition, and it looks like something completely different. I've tried to explain it to you in this way. Imagine if those of us in Stratford were banished to Marshfield by our landlord because we had upset 
him or her, and Edgar, who desperately needs a permanent location, decided rather than set up and tear down every uh, week, they, they would come and meet here. And so they drove here while we were banished and living there, and we came back five years later, and instead of the walls being brown, the walls were Edgar Green. And instead of the, the green walls, there was yellow back there. And instead of a uh, nice uh, hanging wall uh, decor, there was a big tiger. And it was just a bit odd, you know? And, and so we, what are you doing here? And, and, and instead of Zach preaching, it's Josh. And, instead of, and so we're getting used to one another uh, again. This was, my, my, my illustration in, pales in comparison to what's actually happening here. Um, these are people who diametrically opposed each other. This is one group who, from antiquity, were called the children of God, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their, their heirs. And this is another group of people who have just recently, post-resurrection of Jesus, been grafted in. And Paul has said about them, they too are, are uh, the grace of God is available to, to them as well. You need to get used to that. So this is all relatively new. And Paul is writing Romans to unify these two groups of people. This is why every church, every church, should strive for a multi-ethnic representation that is similar to their area demographics. Every church should strive for that. Does that make sense? In other words, if the community's 30% Hispanic, the church ought to be, by the glory of God, 30% Hispanic. If the community is 70% black and 30% white, gosh, the church should represent the same demographic. That's what the church should look like, the place that it's in, if there is, in fact, no difference between slave or free or Jew or Gentile or black or white. So Paul says the answer for relational breakdown among racial lines is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how fitting is this? I didn't plan this, but to this sermon to hit on the weekend of Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Sometimes God just kind of put something uh, together. And so Paul says one of the primary things is dividing Jews and Gentiles is how Jews approach the law. That is the, the list of things to do and, and not to do. Uh, as we've discussed, the Jews approach the law with a very religious mindset. I obey, therefore God accepts me. They assumed like every other religion, that being right with God was determined by how well they kept what? Well, the rules, of course. So Paul makes the point that it's a faulty mindset, and it's a mindset that's leading to division among people groups. It's a mindset that's leading to racism. Because your sense of holiness is based upon your perceived goodness. You're always in competition. You're always comparing yourselves to others. You're always, when you're doing well, boasting and prideful. And when you're not doing so well, you're 
despairing and jealous. And he says this has to change. The church, um, I should say the essence of pride um, in, in, in any area of life, including the church, in religion or, or sports or academics or parenting or culture or ethnicity, if you think about it, is competition. That's where pride comes from. From comparison. C.S. Lewis put it this way. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally as rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. Think of it this way. It doesn't matter to a Packer fan how many championships or Super Bowl victories we have. It matters how many more we have than the Lions, the Vikings, right? And the Bears. That's what matters. And obviously, we, we should all just be Viking fans, right? Because Jesus says the last shall be first, right? Okay? So pride sustains itself by comparison. In religion, we're always asking ourselves, we'd never say it, am I better than so-and-so? Am I as good of a mother as so-and-so? Do I pray as much as, is my heart as pure as, do I do as much good for my neighbor as so-and-so. And if, in our comparison, we're doing well, what does that lead to? It leads to pride. It leads to boasting. If we're doing unfavorably by comparison, what does that lead to? Well, it leads to an inferiority complex. It leads to jealousy. It leads to hatred. If, and, and we can, as I have in the past, even developed a real sensitivity to criticism from other people. Criticism bothers us because our identity is built on being better than somebody else. So if someone challenges my, Zach's, sense of goodness, what do I do? In my mind, I start thinking, compiling this list of things that I do better than him or her. About the guy at work that gets the promotion, we think, yeah, but you know, I'm a better dad than him. That's one thing that I've got the advantage in. He got the promotion, but he doesn't wrestle with his kids at night. I can think this way about pastors. He or she 
he or she is a better preacher than me, but, but I think I, I've got better decision-making skills. If only his church had a pastor with that much wisdom, he'd be able to more carefully navigate. He wouldn't have as many church problems. Great preacher, great preacher lots of problems. What about the mom that has the HGTV-worthy kitchen displayed behind her brownies on social media? And you see that beautiful wooden cutting board with all those fresh veggies and, and there are no dishes in the sink, not a single one. And, and maybe you think to yourself, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure this looks perfect, but I'm sure she's cooler online than she really is. She's probably got a marriage problem. Or, her kitchen's nice, but she's probably got a marriage problem or two she's dealing with. Okay, don't act like I'm not describing your thought process. So when our justification comes from our law-keeping, we're often in denial of our own flaws because that would undermine our perceived goodness. And Paul says, you don't realize it, but that's the major source of your division, your own goodness or your perception thereof. Your justification, Paul's saying, does not come from your goodness. It's a gift freely given by Jesus Christ. It's his grace that is how we are justified. He says so in verse 27. Where then is boasting? In other words, what's the point of boasting? You cannot boast. It's excluded because you could not keep the law. You are not saved by anything you did. There is none righteous, not even one. In fact, you were so bad, Paul's saying, that Jesus had to die for you. And so the gospel undercuts any notion that we might have of religious pride. It destroys its foundation. We sing, um, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, Thy richest gain, my richest gain, my richest gain, I count but loss and poor contempt on all my, what? Pride. That's the goal of the gospel. To drown out our pride. Verse 29. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. In other words, why do you think of yourselves in different categories? Paul says there's only one kind of person, a sinner. We read it last week. For all have what? Sinned and fallen short. Gentiles, Jews, young, Old, poor, rich, black, white, uh, religious, 
irreligious, female, male, everybody has fallen short of the gospel of God. Baptized, yet to be baptized, everybody. There is no distinction, Paul says. So the gospel creates a, a brand new humanity that overcomes worldly division. That's what he's telling us. And he says, if we can't distinguish ourselves in the sight of God, if, if we cannot, only then is there a new unity that will invigorate the church. Walls of pride come down when we don't see ourselves different than others. Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century British pastor, he had an awesome beard. Great preacher. I am working on a research project that proves that preaching skill improves with beard length. I'm doing some research, okay? Spurgeon said he saw three main dividers, three main places of boasting in the church, in London society during his day. And they, they haven't changed. They haven't changed. This is the first one, he said. First, there's the pride of race. He noticed this in London. Nothing has changed. Um, and don't get me wrong. I love a variety of cultures. I love, how many of you love Mexican food? Oh, my word. How many of you love African rhythm, music? How many of you, like, every time it comes on, ah, you're just like, yeah, I love that. That's just wonderful. How many of you love Japanese minivans? Okay, we, that's a Burris family thing, must be. How many of you love American freedom? It's amazing, isn't it? So I love uh, El Salvadoran pupusas. They're amazing. So we value different things in different cultures. That's wonderful. Cultures are beautiful things. Nothing wrong with them. We take delight in them. We have a profound sense of dignity in our culture of origin. But when they become our primary distinguishing identity, what justifies us, what sets us above and apart from somebody else, they become divisive. That is to say, when we see our Americanness or our Jewishness or our whiteness or our blackness as superior to someone else's otherness, we become idolaters. That's what Paul's saying. Paul says, Where is boasting then? In other words, in this new gospel reality, from where comes this sense of superiority about your culture, about your race? Don't you understand? There's only one race of people, and that's sinners, and there's only one hope for people, and that's Jesus Christ. Paul would even say in Philippians 3, my Jewishness, my Jewishness, is as garbage to me now that I've met Jesus. This is a guy who's trained under Gamaliel. He had the best mentor there was in his day. 
he had a, his, his pedigree was unmatched. And he would say, in fact, some scholars say the word literally means crap. Dung. Paul says, uh, it's, it's, it's a word, um, scubala. Scubala. Um, I used to boast about my race. That's what Paul's saying. But now I know in uh, Philippians 3 that that's a bunch of BS. Bull scubala. Okay? That's what I've learned about that. It's not true. We can't rely as an identity upon our race. And, and Paul is certainly not embarrassed by his race, I'll tell you that. He's, he's, he loves his heritage. It's just that when compared to his newfound identity in Jesus Christ, it's no longer his race a priority to him. Pastor Tony Evans once said this, the racial application to Paul's teaching on the gospel is that it is technically incorrect to say, I'm a black Christian or I'm a white Christian because now you've made black and white adjectives and Christian a noun and the job of the adjective is to modify the noun. So now you've got to keep Christian looking like the adjective that describes it or it ceases to be Christian. End quote. I may ruffle a few feathers in saying this, but black and white culture have nothing to do with the essence of being a Christian. Nothing. It's better to say, I am a Christian whom God happened to make white. I am a Christian who God created black. Many people need to crucify their whiteness or their blackness and realize that they are first a child of the king. Paul knows quite well our ethnic identity has become too large in our thoughts about who we are. You may think you're immune, but the Apostle Peter even was not immune after having, having sat under the tutelage of Jesus Christ. Even after Paul had to confront him, when Peter's standing there refusing to eat with Gentiles because he thinks he's better than, Paul has to explain the gospel to Peter of the inner circle. One of the three who Jesus spent most of his, his time with and say, listen, Peter, racial tension is a gospel issue. Have you forgotten, Peter, how far Jesus reached out to include us? We ought to reach out also. Charles Spurgeon said, in addition to the pride of race, we have the pride of face 
and place, face and place. That is to say that we think some characteristic or personal accomplishment sets us apart, justifies us, saves us. We tend to see people in categories at times, um, the successful and the unsuccessful, the intelligent and the dull, or the beautiful and the ugly, the fit and the fat, the rich and the poor. And we look down on those who are less than we are in those areas. And Charles Spurgeon rightly says, sometimes we even feel intimidated by those who are more so than we are in those areas. Let me challenge your way of thinking this morning. Do you realize how little of your talents in life you can actually take credit for? Think about your genes. Who gave you your genes? Your parents. You can't take credit for that. I came from your mom and dad. Uh, think about um, how God gave you health. God gave you the mental capacity to take advantage of opportunity and thrive in opportunity to pursue your dreams. Let me ask you this. Do you really think, do you really think that if you had been born in an orphan uh, an orphanage in a village in Somalia that you would be where you are today. You would not. Don't we have a lot to be thankful for? Isn't it true that even... God's common grace in the location of our birth in a country like the United States in a time of history where we're not war-torn, isn't that in and of itself a gift of God? So don't take pride in place or face. Um, do you realize how worthless our talents are when it comes to the things that really matter. Paul had the best resume, the best education, the best class, the best teacher, and he said, all of it is a steaming pile. Now that I've met Christ, Jesus is worth to me so much more. I treasure him so much more than everything, infinitely more than everything else. Um, he, he seemed to say, you can be ugly, these are my words now, paraphrase, for 80 years on earth, 80 years, and still be beautiful for an eternity with Jesus. That's how heaven's going to be. You can never know your dad on this earth or be at enmity with your dad and still have a heavenly father who adores you in heaven for an eternity. You can have next to nothing in this life. We have people in our church who have next to nothing and then live forever with wealth and riches in heaven. It's amazing if you know Jesus. The pride of face or place makes absolutely no sense. Maybe the worst and most nonsensical of all, Spurgeon said, and I'll conclude with this one, is the pride of grace. The pride of grace. That is, 
The pride that comes from having lived a moral life. The pride that comes from having avoided shameful sins that others have dabbled in. The pride that comes from having never smoked pot or having never been fired from a job or having not have sex before marriage or having never gone into debt or having never been divorced or have, having always had a 15-year mortgage and not a 30-year mortgage or having graduated from a four-year college or grad school or doctoral program. And so now you feel a sense of distinction. Paul says, friend, don't you understand the gospel? In Christ, there are no good people. Versus bad people. There are no people who have it together versus the dysfunctional. There's only bad, sin sick rebels without God, without hope in the world, to whom God freely gives his grace. It has nothing to do with you, it has everything to do with the goodness of God. That's the point of Romans. Just because God in his grace kept you from some sins makes you no better than others who have dabbled in those sins. No one is righteous, not even one. The seed of sin is in every human heart. So where do you get off thinking that you are superior because of your race? or because of your face, or because of your place, or because of grace. Where? So when we are experiencing division, or jealousy, or bitterness, or insecurity, we should ask ourselves always first, where is my boast? How am I contributing to this conflict? How is my perspective skewed? What makes me think I deserve better? Anytime you boast in anything apart from the gospel, it'll lead to conflict. That's why we boast in the goodness of God. Amen. Father, I just pray this morning, Lord, as we as we prepare to give to you, Lord, that you would root out of us any notion that we are superior to someone else. Lord, I remember living in Marshfield and putting out weed and feed and
taking the dispenser closer to my neighbor's line and wishing that they would care as much about their yards as I do mine. Lord, I pray that you would humble us. I pray that you would remind us that we are as desperate for your grace as the next guy or gal. And Lord, out of our humility, out of making ourselves nothing, out of lowering ourselves, may you be lifted up. May you be all the more visible. May your fame grow. In Jesus' name. Amen.